All right, uh, we have so much going on in the way of the election these days. All right, what I want to talk about in particular is not so much to make a prediction of who's going to win the nomination. It's just too hard at this point. But I want to make some observations. And one is about the enthusiasm factor. Uh, I, I mentioned in my Sunday show that it was really hard to find any lawn signs. Uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking from West Los Angeles, right? So you would expect to see a lot of Hillary Kane uh, lawn signs or, or bumper stickers. And I see oh, virtually none. I literally saw one today, this morning. That's it, a lawn sign. And I haven't seen a single bumper sticker. I've seen the old Obama stickers. I've seen Bernie stickers and lawn signs from the old days. But I have not seen a Hillary Kane lawn sign or bumper sticker. I even saw a Gore Lieberman bumper sticker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was in 2000, right? That was 16 years ago, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was very faded, but it was there. <laughs> there it is. Well, God bless them for remembering and keeping that spirit alive. They're coming back, I tell you. We're getting the band back together. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, I, but the enthusiasm, that is, is indicative. Now, I, I, I want to give a shout out to and give credit to a good friend of mine. His name is Gene. He was the one who kind of made that observation. And it's an, it's, a, it's an observation in plain sight. Like, what's happening here? In, in 2008 and 2012 and, and of course, 04 and, and 2000, you, you would see lawn signs and bumper stickers everywhere, and it's just not happening. So that's an indication to me of something. Another indication is the lack of attention to social media. Um, there's a lot for Trump, a lot less for Hillary Clinton. That's, that's meaningful as well. And then, of course, you've got the issue of a lot of people meeting for um, Trump rallies. There's just a huge flocking of people going to that. Whereas Hillary Clinton, <clears throat> there, there are a lot of crickets who show up at these, uh, these rallies for her. So obviously I'm exaggerating to some extent, but there's just not the enthusiasm. They, they, they don't know what she's about um, other than she doesn't have a penis. And that, that's good enough for them, I suppose. And there's also the, the threat, I suppose, that she's using scare tactics with, with regard to Trump. As you know, I'm not a big fan of Trump. Uh, I think we could have chosen 16 other candidates who were far better. Uh, nevertheless, actually 15 of the candidates, I didn't like Rand Paul. That's the only one I didn't, I would, I would prefer Trump over Rand Paul. So 15 other candidates that I thought were, were better. But here we are, this, th these are our choices. And I certainly prefer him far more than I prefer Clinton. Uh, Clinton, who I feel is a crook. I, I feel she's evil. I feel she has no spirit of God in her whatsoever. I think the only thing that animates her is, is Hillary herself and her sense and desire for, for power. Uh, th that's just not good enough for me. I, I think we need, we need somebody who has a sense of what America is. And I think she's seeking the, the active destruction, or shall we say the belittling of America as, as much so as, if not more so than, than Obama. All right. <clears throat> so enthusiasm, I just want to make that ob observation. The other thing I want to talk about is um, this, you know, as we speak, we're just shy of a, or about a week from a very big scandal that occurred that was released. It was a video of Donald Trump uh, talking to a man named Billy Bush from uh, 2005, a 2000 video, a 2005 video in which he uh, spoke very scandalously, shall we say, about women and how to grab women's 
body parts and how they enjoy it and uh, and how he does this all the time and it's really wonderful and he's a celebrity. It was arrogant. It was disgusting in many ways. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it came out and it was it had a lot of fanfare to it and it really almost cratered the Donald Trump campaign for three days or so. So the question becomes, and, and, and this is something I haven't heard really discussed very well, but this is an important topic. Why did the Clinton campaign decide to release this just slightly more than a month before the election? And my point is that they felt that it was necessary to release it because they were concerned about the WikiLeaks, that there was more stuff coming out about the emails. As you know, WikiLeaks was, was very engaged in releasing all these emails. So they were concerned about this, and they needed a distraction, and a big one. And so they got their distraction. Indeed, all the media, of course, focused on it. It's very easy to talk about sex and how, how uh, inappropriate it is, and can a man talk like this, and... To disqualify him to, to serve as president, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the national discussion for quite a while. And also, I think they wanted to use it to shape the second debate, that that's where the whole debate would turn on and would, again, put Donald Trump totally on the defensive. Well, that didn't work, didn't work out so well. Say what you will about his performance on the second debate. I thought it was far more effective than his performance in the first debate. He put Hillary Clinton constantly on the defensive, and when it came to the sex tape, uh, the, the, the talk about, not the sex tape, but I guess the, the video about sex and the way he talked about sex, um, he was able to put that past him in the debate very quickly. I think it was discussed for a total of three or four minutes, and then he was moving on to other topics. Good for him. It was very smart. So that didn't work out so well for Clinton in that department. Uh, I know Ari has a different approach in terms of the way he projected him, his image at the time and the way he stood and he lured over Hillary Clinton. But I don't want to really get into that. Oh, no, I agree with everything you say all the time, sir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Is that so much to ask? <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to say, finally, there's it, someone who knows what they're doing right. That's right. If only he agreed with me all the time. So anyway, the, the, the point is that, that it didn't quite work out so well. Now, now, here's the question. Wouldn't it have been smarter for the Hillary Clinton campaign to have brought this video out with this scurrilous talk about sex a week before the election, 10 days before the election. Do you know that in that kind of zone of time, that would have been far more effective. But instead, they exercised this nuclear option, right? Which, you know, it's devastating stuff. It's really bad stuff. But, you know, the national discussion has kind of come and gone and we're done. Just like when you, when you look back on what happened on 9-11 with Hillary Clinton with her fainting spell, remember? No one's talking about that anymore. It's a, it's a done deal. It's a, you know, no one's talking about her health anymore. You know, she, she might have another collapse. I suppose then they'll talk again about it. But unless she has another such collapse, it's, it's not going to be a relevant issue for voting purposes. So now, your point, Ari, we spoke about this offline, is that don't you worry, Barack... Actually, I am worried. Don't you worry, Brock. They've got plenty of uh, vaults of tapes ready to, to go. Right. I think, at, um, just, at, at just the right time and just the right measure. To, to dole it out, right? To be fair, I said, don't you worry about them, Barack. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> because you seem so worried about their strategy. Right, right. I'm sure they have plenty more where that came from. Right. 
But it, it is interesting, right? I mean, it's, it is the nuclear option, and they decided to exercise it then. I think the reason why they did so was precisely what I said, to serve as a distraction because of the WikiLeaks uh, emails that were really quite damning when you think about it. I mean, the things that have come out, and we can talk about that in a moment, are really quite damning and would have damned any campaign. Uh, I mean, think about you know Mitt Romney and the 47% comment that he made uh, four years ago. Uh, that's nothing compared to what we now learn from the Hillary uh, campaign and the emails that have been released from WikiLeaks. Among them are her sense that they have a, a public persona versus a private persona. She has contempt for the Catholic Church. Um, and, and how, I mean, just really, it's, it's really despicable what she says about the Catholic Church. Um, she says uh, she dis- is very dismissive about Latinos. Uh, th- this is not good stuff. A, a big one is... Um there are exchanges where they talk about how it was their plan and how happy they are that Americans are so stupid and uninformed. Yes. And oh, that's right. Are oh. easily pliable in their opinions and emotions. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me about that. That's exactly I mean, right. Because in a normal world, if that were going to be on the front page of the New York Times, right. and if people could still read, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, it would have an effect on the election. Well, that, that kind of dovetails nicely with the, deplor- the, the deplorables comment, right, from a month. And, and that still has some echoing effect, by the way. And if Donald Trump knows how, how, how to seize upon that, he might actually get some traction there. He says, like, first you call them deplorables, and now that you're calling them stupid and pliable and you can manipulate them. Do you want this lady as your president, ladies and gentlemen of, of America? Yeah, but then she'll have a perfect comeback. Yeah. No, 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 Donald. Donald. <laughs> the deplorables are different people. The stupid people are the are the Democrats. <laughs> I see. Yeah. That's yeah right. The inner cities, oh, the point. public schools. Good point. Uh, the, we want them to be stupid so they keep voting for us. Yeah. Well, he's got even though it's against their self interest. Listen, uh, uh, and then we have the whole media Hillary Clinton interplay, right? Because as you as you uh, said, and and I've said, you know, the 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 media is simply a subdivision of the Hillary campaign. Or vice versa. I don't even know if it's a subdivision. <laughs> it right. seems to be the same yeah. uh, column. There, there that's is right. no compartmentalization. Right. I mean, they're alter egos. Even of that's each other. a mistake. You know, in law, you have something called alter ego, and an alter ego, you know, not like the Superman Clark Kent situation. It, it, the, the alter ego concept is that you know you create a corporation for purposes of protecting yourself from liability, but you decide that you're going to you know, raid the, uh, the corporate till for your personal purposes, to pay the orthodontist, to, to pay your divorce lawyer, uh, you know, to, to improve your yacht, whatever it might be. And it has nothing to do with the, the business uh, purposes of XYZ Corporation. And if and somebody sues XYZ Corporation and they get a judgment against XYZ Corporation, um, then the guy says, well, you know, that's, it's all good and well. You have a judgment against XYZ Corporation. You can't come after me because, ha-ha, I've got a legitimate corporation here. Not so fast, because they can, if they go into the books and records of XYZ Corporation and find out that, in fact, you've been using this as a, as a shill, they'll go after you and they'll say, no, sir, you're the alter ego of XYZ Corporation. And so you are the true defendant behind XYZ Corporation. That's what's going on. And if that's the case, then, then you can go after now this individual as though you had sued him successfully. We, we, have, we have successfully obtained alter ego judgments just like that uh, on, a, on a number of occasions. <clears throat> so work to the wise, if you're going to have a corporation, don't think that that's enough. You have to actually observe what we call corporate formalities. 
All right, now. Oh, a- oh, no, no, stop. <clears throat> and at that point, you have to say, and if you're interested, we are Lurie and Seltzer, <laughs> and the phone number is... Yeah, that's fine. That's <laughs> okay. Fine. No, that people know our phone number. The point is that the, the corporate formalities have not been observed between the media on the one hand and, and Hillary Clinton on the other. Yeah. Right? So it's like they forget... Yeah. I mean, there was a movie I remember seeing, you know, this father and son, they, they're much older. One is like 80 and the other is, it appears to be 65 or something, or 60, I guess. And, you know, they're working the, the field and, and the narrator's voice uh, goes on. They've been working so long together, but they forget which is the father and which is the son. Like, okay, I think they, they don't forget who's who. But anyway, uh, which is the father and which is the son is kind of a cute concept. But I really think when it comes to the media... And the Clinton campaign, they forget who is who. Right. The, the, is the media, you know, the Clinton campaign? The answer is yes. Is the Clinton campaign the media? The answer is yes. Yeah, it's a case of psychologists will call this borderline personality disorder, which is where people are unable to differentiate where the borderline between them and others begins and ends. In the case of Clinton's and the media, there is no borderline. Yeah. We make a mistake Assuming there is, when you when you as a conservative say, I can't believe that uh, Andrew Mitchell, NBC News, is so biased for Hillary. No, she's not biased for Hillary. She is Hillary. Right, that's exactly right. It's, <laughs> and, and it's it's all a pretense right now. We're going through that twilight zone that, that of of uh, where the media is changing to just be actual uh, political shills. You know, they just don't admit it. They they still have the echoes of the '60s and even to some extent the '70s where there was a, a pretense that they were, in fact, objective and neutral and they reported the news truthfully. Now, so, so we still believe that when we talk about the media. Oh, when, the journalistic integrity. Right. Kind of stuff, yeah. That CNN is actually reporting the news as it is. And they're, you know, giving a fair shot to every aspect of the political campaign, for that matter, political issues, generally speaking. And the truth is, of course, that they're, they're hardly doing that whatsoever. For example... There's a major news story now that there may have been a um, out-of-wedlock child by Bill Clinton. Uh, I forget the, the boys, the, 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 now a young man. I think he's in his late 20s or so. And he's uh, half black, half white. And whether or not he's actually Bill Clinton's son it hasn't been proven. But boy, he sure looks like Bill Clinton. Um, and the circumstances seem to line up pretty well that Bill Clinton could very well be his father. But whether or not that's actually true, there is no coverage about what might otherwise be a hugely important story. And <clears throat> had this been the reverse, where Donald Trump is the alleged father, or any Republican for that matter would be the alleged father of, uh, in a campaign trail like this, uh, you, you could rest assured that this would be the only topic of conversation, correct? Right. Even in your, I think <clears throat> the point you're making that's so powerful in this regard is that even if the evidence is scurrilous and thin to begin with, right. it would be reported wall to wall if it was a Republican. That's right. No matter how thin the evidence is or how thick and legitimate the evidence is, since it's a Democrat, it's not even mentioned. Right. And the profound point you made in the last couple of minutes, which is far different than what we've talked about with media bias in the past and past elections, is we're no longer talking about either bias or cheerleaderism on the part of the media. We're talking about complete and utter collusion where the point is the the institution and the candidacy are are the same. Right. <clears throat> and instead of say talking points being released by the Clintons and the uh, or be, and we mentioned them because they are the candidate on that side. 
and uh, the media then following, you know, oh, a press release was here, a speech there. It's completely in reverse. Right. The media <clears throat> is helping the Clintons determine what news will be released and what appearance and what speech should be given in relation to what they're going to release. Of course, it's, 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 right. it's complete yeah, no, cooperation. It's, it's, we, we are – look, again, we're not making a prediction on the, uh, the Clinton – Trump election at this point, it's it's just too difficult to tell. There's, I, I don't trust virtually any poll anymore. I have no idea. Um, the, the polls have been so wrong in the past, uh, past few election cycles. You would think that they would actually get more accurate as time goes on, like anything else, right? You can predict the weather a little bit better these days than you can in the old days. You can predict uh, a lot of things better. Uh, you can see where certain innovations are going to head. But when it comes to electioning, it seems like it's gotten far worse. The polling uh, predictability. That it, it's I don't really, I don't trust anything. And then there's the whole social media issue and the enthusiasm issue that we just we've been talking about. So let's put that aside for the yeah, time. Yeah, and being. then of course the vote fraud issue, which is is oh, unpredictable. Totally because unpredictable. Because you can't. The only thing you can predict is you know in certain districts and counties, Democrats will cheat. Right. But how much? When? Where? If? Yeah. You can't poll the dead. Yeah, you know? That's true. Uh, look, I, I mean, the, uh, it, it's just too wildly difficult to to predict. Uh, we, we do know that the enthusiasm is very low for the Hillary campaign. However, if you have enough people cheating, I suppose in this or that state, you can get a, a win. Um, there's also the, the fact that, you know, she's a woman, and, and I think that actually cuts against her. Not that I think it should cut against her, by the way. I, I don't, couldn't care less what your genitals are. I just think that at the end of the day, women are very tough on women. We've said this before. We've had two uh, terms of a Democratic president, and generally speaking, third-term uh, presidencies are in the same party are very rare. So that's another headwind. There's just too many headwinds. Yeah, and that, there. by the way, dovetails to what you were speaking about earlier as to what the nature of these scandals are. There is so much material about Donald Trump over the years. He has been such a... a forward and, and visible media personality that any part of his record you could take and promote right. for whatever purpose. Good businessman, brutish guy, casino, whatever. You notice everything they're putting forward from last week's nuclear bomb to what we think they'll probably put forward negative about him in the next few weeks is all about sexuality. And it goes to your point exactly, which is women don't like Hillary Clinton. That's right. Okay, women see don't. her as as not good in on several fronts. Thus, the media in their in their collusion is trying to make Trump unpalatable towards women, right? And That's make right. them default towards their gal. I, I agree. Uh, one of the other aspects that we need to consider, though, however, is the Bernie Sanders effect for one thing, and then also the fact that Trump had won uh, pretty handily in the Republican nomination. He he wasn't a squeaker. Let's put it that way, and. It's yes, it's the year of the outsider and such. I think, I think the fact that he was able to kind of move along and and there were there were some scandals that came along during the Republican nomination process that came out and he was able to deflect it pretty well. Um, it was Teflon, whatever you want to call it. Things that would other, otherwise destroy a candidacy uh, seemed to not matter whatsoever when it came to the primaries of Donald Trump. Well, the media wanted. <clears throat> Hey, look, let's not, I, I don't know that I can, <clears throat> I can agree too much in the kind of um, conspiracy side of it, uh, on that part of it. Because at the end of the day, people choose to vote because there's a sense in them. There, there is a mood in the country. 
and they won Donald Trump. It just, you know, I think the other Republican nominees got their voices out pretty effectively. They just, I mean, Jeb Bush, for example, he he spent $100 million on the process, and Trump spent virtually nothing. But Jeb Bush, uh, you know, he was destroyed. And, and, and so I'm simply saying that's another factor that actually cuts in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, Hillary Clinton is establishment. There's no getting around that for her. So she has to fight that really hard. Who knows? I just don't know. But I'm simply saying this is an interesting study now, and it's worth looking at the media effect, the, the obvious, um, the lack of any pretense that they are colluding with the Democratic campaign for president. We now know that they probably have uh, fed questions to Hillary Clinton during these debates. One, I, I heard two questions in the first debate that I was certain, just from my experience as a lawyer, knowing when somebody has been fed a question and that they're rehearsing the answer back. I, I know it. I can see it. And, you know, in law, it's okay to be able to respond, um, especially on a direct examination. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself and your charitable work, sir. You know, and then it's, oh, I like doing this. And this is when a defendant, for example, is accused of fraud. He wants to show what a good guy he is. What a pillar of the community <clears throat> right. he's always been. Yeah. So, so, so this little fraud thing here doesn't yeah. add up to all the children he fed. That's right. So a, a lawyer in that situation would say, you're a charitable member of community. You know, you've always been, you know. And, and so he's, you know, press play. Here you go. And that's it's a legitimate thing. You're allowed to do that, yeah. of course. You know, no one's going to arrest you for having an obviously rehearsed answer. But <clears throat> it's not supposed to be that way in a national debate. Well, in, in court, there are two lawyers, <clears throat> one on his side That's who right. everyone knows is, I'm his lawyer. Right. And then there's the other guy who's the other guy's lawyer. Right. The media <laughs> doesn't do <Right>. that. <laughs> so that's a good point. The direct examination process is where the ones where you kind of have prepared a little ahead of time. And the other side has their direct examination, and presumably they've prepared their person for their arguments. Okay. <clears throat> and their responses. But what you're not supposed to be prepared for is the cross-examination. Right. You can guess it. Sure, you can prepare. Okay, we, we think they're going to come at you with your bank statements, and you and they're going to ask you to explain that. So let's, let's kind of prepare for their anticipated questions. That's fine. That's called debate prep, or for that matter, trial prep. But, or, as I call it, doing your homework for the job at hand. Right. But when the lawyer who's supposed to be cross-examining you is apparently on your side, then we've got a problem. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. We now know that there at least one question was fed to her uh, for, during the primary season, right? But, of course, this has happened many times before. And, and I, I, the, the question I remember in the first debate that to me was so clearly rehearsed and, and that she had the question ahead of time was when Lester Holt said, are you saying that the police are biased? And she right away responded, ah, Lester, I think that we're all biased in our own way. You know, which, which is truly a perfect answer, right? And, and just in, in pure Soviet Pravda-ish style, there's enough truth there that they pretend just doesn't exist. Right. Lester Holt, a biased member of the media, asked Hillary, is there bias? <laughs> Lester, we're all biased. But she doesn't say, the, the, true, the real answer would be, you're biased, Lester Holt, right. in my favor. <laughs> That's true. Wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, so we, we are experiencing the media. We're, we're, we're witnessing the, the media bias. We're witnessing an incredible, strange new wave of support for an outsider 
The Bernie effect I was telling you about, the fact that Bernie was so strongly nipping at her heels. Yes, she won the nomination, but... No, but also, he won the election. But he really More actually, people really wanted to vote for him. I, that's, that's, uh, that's the conclusion that we all now must make because of what we learned from the WikiLeaks emails that, in fact, that they were actually conspiring against him to make sure that there's no way in hell that Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee. Um, so, you know, at, at some point in 2020, I think we'll, we'll see, you know, more candidates like him, not Bernie Sanders himself, but more socialist oriented candidates because they know that that was very effective. But that's another story for another day. Uh, the, the enthusiasm factor, the outsider factor, the media factor um, and the whole WikiLeaks. And it's just beyond understanding and then this chess game that's going on right now, it's, it's fascinating to me. Where will it play out? Again, we, we don't know. But what bothers me the most is that we have no predictability. We, we, we see a bunch of things happening right now, but it's kind of like, it, you know, it's like, it's like being unable to understand the path of a hurricane. We have no idea. Right? You may see that there's a wind that's blowing a certain way, a, a strange drop in temperature. But you don't know where, if you had no idea of technology and no satellite advanced you know, studies of where the hurricane's going and such like we have today, if it were, let's say, 200 years ago, you know, you, would just, you wouldn't know that a hurricane is coming, right? But you would kind of know bad weather's a coming. <laughs> you remember this from 15 years ago in this same vicinity in North Carolina, for example. I remember the great hurricane of, you know, 19, uh, 1802. And now it's uh, 1835, and it's just the same feeling. But you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how strong it's going to be. And you don't know it's, it's where it's going to end up going as well. So how devastating will this be? I don't know. But, but I feel like we've gotten less and less information. And um, we are as a, uh, because of that, we are unable to predict the future whatsoever in terms of how this election is going to play out. Hillary could win. Trump could win. We could all be very surprised and have a very, uh, almost a landslide for Trump. I just don't know. We don't have enough information. Despite all the media support, despite all the, the crazy stuff that we're seeing, it may very well be that just people don't want to vote for Clinton. But we really ought to know more. It's, it's pathetic that we don't know more, that we can't predict this right now. And there's all sorts of reasons for it, as we discussed. All right, don't go away. We'll be right back. Dennis Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you had a case involving a $220,000 promissory note and you won a trial, but later discovered that the defendant had transferred all his assets. Dennis, when judgment debtors don't want to pay, they may shift assets over to their relatives, asking them to hold them till the coast is clear. How did you get the payment? The defendant had transferred title to two commercial buildings. We convinced them to admit it was an illegal transfer. That led to a great settlement with guarantees from relatives with penalties. And don't you know, they're making payments every month on time like clockwork. I'll say another success. I trust Barack Lurie with my own legalities. Call him at 866-575-8111. That's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie and Seltzer. 866-575-8111. And now listen to the Barack Lurie Show Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here on AM 870, The Answer. 
right, we're back. Uh, look, one of the topics that we always discuss are the differences, the right-left divide, right? I, I, you hear me talking about conservatism as a proposition and what it seeks, uh, and liberalism as a proposition and what it seeks uh, by distinction. And we talked, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago, Ari, about how, uh, you know, the, the bad always pretend to be good and the good never pretend to be bad. It's a, it's a, it's a big distinction, right? And that's the, the nature of con men, for example. That's the nature of criminals, that they, they don't announce themselves, hey, I'm about to you know, defraud you, right? And just to let you know, this is my nature, I'm a bad guy. <laughs> they, don't, they don't say that. It kind of undermines the scam. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> the grip so, doesn't work right. if you do that. <laughs> and by contrast, a, a good person who is really trying to do charitable work, for example, is not going to go out there and say, you know, uh, to deceive you and say, I'm doing this for malicious purposes, you know, but... But really, in the back of their mind, they're doing it for good purposes. Yeah. It's a, it doesn't work like that. Okay. Uh, so that's one example. And one of the other examples I want to talk about today is this notion of what, what, does, what is the classic liberal? I'm not talking about every liberal, but the classic liberal, the, the far left liberal, today's liberal, not the liberal of Kennedy's time. What is the far left liberal? What animates him? Right? I mean, it, we're, you and I are kind of fascinated by them. We talk about the different policies and everything else and, you know, big government versus limited government. And those are the classic things. But I think you can really boil it down to one basic sense. So we, conservatism operates from a sense of fairness, right? And justice. That's, that's kind of, they go part and parcel for us. For the far left liberal, what animates them? is fear. That's right, fear. Uh, that, if you, if you look at all the policies that they advance, there is one thing that seems to be in common about it. Fear. Let's go through some of the classic examples of this. Social security. Classic example, right? This is the heart and hallmark of all things liberal when you think about it, right? It is the cornerstone. It is emblematic. It is the center. If, if you were to build a town of liberalism, there would be the... What, what's the That's Mecca the thing? cathedral in this town no, square. No, no, the, 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 Mecca, the Mecca thing. What is it called? Oh, the ha, the, the Kaaba. The Kaaba, yeah. The, that's the Kaaba. The rock at the center of the, <laughs> right, the around, sanctuary. Around which all liberals <laughs> you know, swarm. Okay? This is, and they bow to it. Okay? And they point to it, <laughs> kiss right, it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that is their uh, Kaaba. Okay? And, social, and Social Security itself, the very notion of it is... You need to protect yourself. The big bad world is out there. You might be alone. We've got to protect you, and the government is there for you. Okay? So because you, you certainly are not there for you, right? So you're afraid, and this is why, why we do things. And then, and then other programs, and, and we're not going to exhaust all of them, but minimum wage, for example, this notion that it's a living wage, because it, it never contemplates the possibility that you might actually get another job for a higher pay. You know, that, that is too fearful for them. Yeah. Not everyone will ever get a promotion. Right. Not everyone will retire with a dollar in their bank. Right. So, <laughs> so. For, for those of you who will never advance in your life, we need a minimum wage, right? And that, that's, that's the way it works. So that, that's another policy that operates out of fear. Okay. And uh, likewise, even with abortion to some extent, now that I think about it, you know, don't worry if you find yourself knocked up. Well, we'll be, you know, we will... Destigmatize the whole process, and you can get an abortion. It'll be safe, legal, and rare, and uh, no one will ask you anything about it, and you can just be on your merry way. Okay, so 
you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid of that anymore. Uh, here, right? So, uh, and then uh, there's, of course, Obamacare. Obamacare is one of the best examples I can think of, right? This notion that some people uh, don't have an insurance, never mind why they may not have insurance. Some of them don't have insurance because they don't bother to get insurance because they're young people or they're stupid or whatever the reason may be. But we've got to get them insured. We've got to make sure everyone is protected. So again, it's, it's, it's a whole program that derives from fear, right? That is, that's the way they look at it. Okay, so capitalism to them is a daunting thing. That's the whole point. We, we talked about promotions and, and the notion that you might actually be able to do your own business and take care of your own weight. It's too fearful for the classic liberal. What if you just can't cut it? That's, that's the, the, so goes the line. And in fact, they want to reshape the entire society because of the, the exceptions, the ones who can't make it. So the social, the safety net that they, they like to kind of always portray, well, they, they want that to be the, the kind of the, the actual rule. And Obamacare is, is a perfect example of that. Now they're changing the entire nature of the health industry in order to satisfy the exceptions, what should be the exceptions, those people who are just not able to cut it. It shouldn't be that way, yeah, of course. Guns is the same issue. Rather than promoting oh, yeah. the Second Amendment, we have gun control because there might be oh, there someone who mishandles a gun, misuses a gun, commits a crime with a gun. Right. Oh, that's I, I really like that. That's a great example. Look at all the socialist divisions, right? They, they look like those cities in Star Trek, right? <laughs> Where there's imagined as, you know, like Yorktown, the Yorktown in the new, the new Star Trek movie where everything is just so pristine and so beautiful and, and, you know, little spaceships are running around and everything else and people are going about their business. But they all look, so, they, they all look the same. Um, it's, it, every building looks pretty much the same as the other. And everyone is very organized and it's structured and there's no crime and, and there's nobody who's poor. It's somebody's vision, but not necessarily everyone's vision, right? So... Uh, it, the, the nature of capitalism is that when you look out in a city, you see different visions, right? You're, you're saying, well, here's a building that somebody built, and that was his vision, one architect's vision, for example. Here's another building uh, that went through a different process, and it's another architect's vision. And, and so it should be, right? Different cities have different laws, different speeding limits, different ideas of how to educate their children. So it should be, right? But, but they're afraid, these, these far-left liberals, they're afraid that if you leave people on their own, well, then there might be somebody who will be left out in the cold. There might be somebody who, uh, who will be poor. And so we just can't have that. And they're also afraid that there might be somebody who might be rich. Yes, that's true. Right? Right. Because a, a rich person, that can't happen either. Right. Well, this is the classic example of giving and, and taking the, the, the famous exchange between security on the one hand and freedom on the other. Yeah. Okay, so, look, uh, Dennis Prager often talks about how truth is not a left-wing value, and I, I agree with that 100%. But I, I also believe that freedom is not a left-wing value. They don't care about freedom. Can, any, can you name the last time you heard a Democrat politician utter the word freedom yeah. pertaining to any issue other than abortion? That's exactly right. I, it, I cannot. And in fact, uh, one of Obama's 
more recent either State of the Union speeches or some speech about America it didn't even mention the word freedom. And you know, it's not fun. once did he yeah. mention it. Yeah, and I found the most disturbing thing about 2008 Obama's rise is this man made speech after speech after speech full of awe and inspiration and vision and you know the whole hysteric thing. Right, things were going and to the, transform. Right. And the word freedom never crossed his lips. Yeah. It's it's and and even if it was subconscious and I think it let's let's, let's give it to him that it was subconscious that he didn't include the word freedom. It, it it almost doesn't matter. It's it's just a reflection of how freedom is not an essential part of his vocabulary, right? That's not what animates him. That animates you. It animates me. It animates almost all of my conservative friends. It's the first thing we think about when we think about America. But for them, they, they have a very different vision. It's about uh, kind of fixing things and fixing it so that everyone has the same thing whether that's insurance, whether that's social security, or whether that's the minimum wage, or affirmative action for that matter. There's, there's very little uh, focus on freedom and the notion that people might be different, because that's what freedom implies. Yeah, right? In other words, the party of diversity doesn't really want any diversity. Oh, of course. Uh, let, that's let, the last thing they want yeah, is let diversity. Me, let me pose a question to you that I think you could just run with on this one. Yeah. Uh, Clinton-esque at a debate kind of uh, run with. Right. Here. You opened up by talking about how conservatism, part and parcel of it, is freedom and justice, or uh, fairness and justice. That's right. If, by nature, different results because of the freedom of economics and choice results in different results that may not be fair, i.e. a person richer than another. How would you reconcile that or explain that to our friends on the left, why that really is fair? Oh, I mean, where do I start? And yes, this is an easy question for you to answer. <laughs> well, okay, let me start, first start off by saying, look, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer. I, I feel like we're fairly successful, uh, but am I as successful as uh, so many other people I know out there and living in the upper parts of Brentwood and Bel Air and Beverly Hills? No. I've got a nice house, but do I have a mansion? No. But does that mean that I, I demand that everyone, you know, that, that everyone who has a mansion has somehow owes it to me to give them a, to give me a mansion? Of course not. It's absurd. And uh, you know, do I do I seek to bring them down? No. Do I envy them? Do I wonder how they got it and, and think to myself, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do something similar and, and kind of get that sort of beautiful mansion? Sure. Um, so, so that's one thing I want to address before I even answer your question. Now you ask me about, is it fair that you have the rich on the one hand and the middle class and then the poor on the other? Uh, yeah, it is. First of all, uh, whatever, however you define poor, we're far, far, far less poor in this country than, we, and than virtually every other country in the world. Okay? Poverty in every other country in the world, with the exception of Israel probably, is, uh, is really quite palpable. You can, you can see it, the shanty towns and everything else. So that's one thing. Secondly, uh, the poor move out of poverty. It's not as if they stay in poverty. It's very rare that you have generational poverty. Yes, I'm sure there's a couple of examples here and there, but by and large, with the right opportunity, people move out of poverty after, the, after one generation, sometimes within their own, uh, their own lifetimes. There are many good examples of this. So the opportunity is what it's all about. So you ask me, why is this fair? Well, because the system allows the rich man to lose money and also the poor man to gain money. In that sense, it's tremendously fair. And people will move up and down and hopefully mostly up the ladder, and they do move up the ladder, generally speaking. That's because of opportunity. 
It's because of fairness in the legal system, uh, because there are protections for innovations and such. And just kind of, if you work hard, you actually can gain and succeed in your life. I, I hope that answers your There's question. There's a predictability to that. Yeah, if you exactly. work hard, you will gain. And if you don't work hard and you're not responsible, you will lose. Right. And, and it's with freedom right. that it allows us to do exactly that. Yeah, and you said something I thought that's so granular to all this. You talked about the words generational poverty. And I believe you and I would fully agree congruently that the one place that generation generational poverty is predictable and constant is places in this country and others where government has intervened to force it to be. That's right. Welfare states, inner city schools, crime-ridden neighborhoods where people don't have First or Second Amendment rights. It's, it's all about fear, isn't yes. it? Yes. Because, and, and that's the whole point. And let's go to the Moses story because this yeah. is a perfect example of this. In the Moses story, uh, the Passover, the Exodus, uh, when, when the Jews left Egypt... Because for, what do they leave Egypt for? For freedom, right? They wanted to leave the bondages of slavery and they wanted freedom. But guess what? Freedom was difficult, they found, in the desert, despite the mana from heaven, despite all the miracles that God gave them. And you can look at this as a fiction if you like, but, but bear with me simply from an allegory point of view. What was so fascinating about the story, fiction or not, I, I believe it's true, but if, even if you believe it's fiction, don't dismiss it quite yet. Because it's not the point that I want to make. The point I want to make is that the that the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. Some Israelites, many of them, many, many because, back to the predictability because it was predictable. Thing. Yes, yes. They said yes. It, it sucked. No one likes being a slave, but by golly, got three square meals a day. <laughs> Never mind, it was full of crap and straw and such like that. But I was able to predict my my daily routine. And I'm willing to trade my freedom for that kind of security, as awful as that security may be. That was, that's the distinction. And that, that paradigm still plays out today, day after day. And it's the classic distinction between liberalism on the one hand and conservatism on the other. So no surprise, by the way, that those who are truly without God, truly who, or who minimize God in every respect, they're the ones who tend to embrace this notion that the government should be taking care of everything for them. They're the ones who manifest this fear uh, of proceeding with capitalism. By contrast, the conservatives, a true conservative at least, embraces the unknown, the uncertain, the unpredictable to some extent. Not, not, the only thing we want is predictability of law, predictability of infrastructure. Yes. But, but in terms of opportunity, the sky's the limit. And, and that, that's something we love because it's, it, it, it comes from freedom and it enables more freedom. I would also add and see if you agree, and because I know you, I know you'll agree, that the truly most unfair situations are where people have no chance to get out of generational poverty. Yeah. Is there anything worse than being stuck as a member of the, uh, um, someone who's not part of the nomenclatura in North Korea and you're stuck in the gulags of or course. the starvation systems? Of course. Even it, if every one of your peers also starves as well? How is that just? It, it's not just. Fair? Well, look, if you, and if you want predictability and if you want security, so to speak, look at the socialist nations of, of Europe uh, and, and talk, about, talk about generational poverty. It, it's almost impossible if you are poor in France or England, it's almost impossible to leap forward. You're better off in England than you are in France, so maybe not a great example. But in, in virtually every socialist European nation, 
some worse than others. Uh, you, you ain't going to make it if you are not already there. That's, that's a problem. And, and even more so and, uh, in India and Pakistan and the Arab nations, if you don't have money as it is, you'll never make any money. It's, it's all a caste system. That's, it, that has nothing to do with what we have here in America. The caste system, as horrible as it is, people continue with it. They don't fight it. Why? Because it still offers a security. You know your place in society. There's something comforting about that to a lot of people. And that mentality is bleeding into the far left. And it has been part of the... I don't think the, it bleeds the, in. That is the, what the, the far yeah, left is. Fair enough, That's the identity of the far left today. Yes. Is that they want exactly that. They want things to be cookie cutter for everybody. Um, again, it goes to the question of who's, who decides what the cookie looks like, right? But they have to decide this. And, and they are deciding it for you. And you will like it. And this is what we're going to teach you. This is what your wage will be. This is what the maximum you can make. And by golly, you're going to like it. Okay? And, and some people do like it. This is exactly what they want. They want the nice little bike lanes. They want their speed limits. They, they want you know, certain energy composting to be done a certain way. Low flow toilets, automatic sinks that give you only so much soap, so That's much right. water per minute. Right. And there's agenda the, twenty one constructions. <laughs> and, and and limitations on your free speech. They're all for it because it provides a very clear vision of what your future is going to be. And they love the pensions, they love the unions, they love things that will constantly let them know what things are going to be like in the future. That's that's Operating out of fear, my friends. Yeah, and it goes and, and it goes completely contrary, completely to contrary to the American experiment. Yeah, and this cuts connects directly to past episodes of this very brilliant podcast about static thinking versus dynamic thinking and how the static thinking of the left becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. The leftist thinks statically. And then he constructs a world in which the world becomes static around him by stifling innovation and by creating generational poverty. And then he goes, lo and behold, see, the world's static. Right. I can think right. statically. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's too daunting for them. It's, you know, a lot of people are very frustrated by the, the rapid pace of innovation, at least in the electronics world. They're very, very frustrated about that because, you know, they just learned one system and now they have to learn another system. Yeah, well, just a perfect example of this. I bought this iPhone. It's a very good working iPhone, right? The, somehow Apple decided it's time to upgrade my operating system on this thing. And, you know, this hardware doesn't support that new operating system. But all of the apps that I run are compatible with the new operating system, not the old. So I'm going to be forced to upgrade this phone to the new yeah. one very soon. Well, that's just, because, one, that's just one example. Because I mean. that, there, and, and, yeah, there's some frustration there. But you know what? That's the unpredictability of it all. Right. It marches forward. I'll, I'll go somewhere kind of maybe even more apt um, because that's just one, you know, iPhone to iPhone and all this stuff. But just for example, how we communicate. Uh, you know, people are texting now uh, as opposed to email. I mean, email was, of course, replaced, uh, you know, the letter. And the facsimiles uh, re replaced the letter to some extent, too. It, it's, you know, that there was messengering before. Things kind of come and go. And... You know, if you were in the if you were in the messengering messengering business in the old days, uh, there still are messengers, of course, that are necessary to deliver big packages and such. That's what UPS and such are all about. But you would have a tough time as a courier as a courier in the old days. I, I know somebody who owned such a business, and he had to drop it when the fax machine came out because 
that was it was it, it basically undercut his business by more than half. Now he should have you know shape shifted his business in, to respond to it. But that's the whole point is that we have to constantly be vigilant, and they don't want vigilance. The far left they want things to be just as they are. That's why they fight, for example, for the hotel industry as opposed to Airbnb. That's why, for example, they fight for the taxi industry instead of Uber, right? Because they are afraid that things won't continue as they are because they've locked in and they've, you know, forget about the political purposes of, of kind of lining up with the taxi cab drivers and the hotel industry and so on for, for purely political purposes. What they say is, well, we just don't like it. It viscerally doesn't feel right to us that all these people, these hotel uh, employees, are all going to be out of work. Well, yeah, a lot of them will be out of work. Not all of them, by the way. But a lot of them may be out of work. Things change. Guess what? They'll find new jobs. That's the way it works. It always has been that way. And frankly, it always should be that way. There will never be a time where it should not be that way. Yeah, and, and by that type of thinking, the perfect response to this is, Aren't you happy all the people in the whaling industry are out of work oh, yeah. and had to get new jobs? Don't you like your precious whales? Aren't you happy? Many of them are now oil workers. Right. And I mean, aren't there plenty of industries of the past you're really glad are gone? Yeah. Well, I mean, just the horse and buggy. You should be glad that's gone. That was cause for, first of all, you know, all sorts of cruelty toward horses, for one thing. So they didn't like that. And then, of course, there's the pooping of the horses all over the all over the city, which caused a stench, and it was very polluting and very unsanitary for so many different reasons. Um, so yeah, but but guess what? The car, uh, and now it's more clean than than ever, of course. The car wiped all that pollution out. We're far more clean as a result of the car than ever having the horses, even in today's society versus the society as it was 100 years ago, 150 years ago, um, the, the refrigerator, of course, replaced the Iceman. Nobody would, would say, I want to have an Iceman and constantly, you know, yeah, what about feed, feed, feed this box with ice. Yeah, yeah. The, the Iceman has, is, no longer has a job. This is, I mean, this is but kind there of argu- The point is their arguments for preserving this stuff are ridiculous, yeah. and it only preserves unfairness. Yeah. That's the core issue. So if you as a conservative value fairness more than anything else, the, that tangent that we took when I asked you that question that ended here answers it perfectly. Right. Unfairness is inherent in the left, and the unpredictability of conservatism results in a minimization of unfairness. Well, right. Innovation gives the poor, the poor person who has a little bit of moxie, a little bit of mojo, the ability to make millions and millions very quickly. I mean, here's a great example, and I think I'll even wrap up with this. Um, and there's just too many examples of Stephen Jobs, of course, right? Uh, he came from very humble beginnings, and he created the, the Apple as we think of it today. I mean, it's, just, it's an extraordinary uh, rise. And think of all the millionaires and billionaires, for that matter, that he made as a result of, of creating, the app, uh, creating Apple and then lining it up with the Internet as it was and all the, the great innovations of Uber and otherwise. Um, and Google, I, mean, I, I can go on and on. These are people that were just scrappers. You know, they didn't come from a lot of money, but they came up with great ideas. And so the poor or even the middle class came up with great things and gave opportunities and jobs to millions of other peoples. And then here's a, one of my favorite examples is... Um, J.K. Rowling, right? The, the, the woman who wrote all the Harry Potter series. Here was a woman who was basically homeless. And she wrote this crazy story about a, little, a young boy who was misunderstood or whatever it was. And he had magic powers. 
And now she's maybe arguably the most successful modern writer ever. And I think she's probably the richest writer that ever the world has ever known. Maybe shorter, well, Shakespeare wasn't rich, but he, he certainly you know, is famous for it. But she will be the richest person ever. Clearly billions in the bank. In, the, in the novel business, yeah. in the writing business. But we need more people like that. We, we need more people who have ideas and innovations. And, and that's what allows for fairness in society. Yeah, and, you give them opportunity right. and, and you let them seize that opportunity and great things will happen. And because of J.K. Rowling's wealth and because of Steve Jobs' wealth and value, it created, you said, it created all those millionaires with Apple, but what about all those people who are just Uber drivers? Oh, yeah. Who have small jobs. What about all those people who work in catering, who worked on the movie sets or work in the movie theaters where J.K. Rowling's movies of the Harry Potter right. movies are playing, who get to sell popcorn and have a little job because of it to put themselves through college. I had one uh, Uber driver, just to let you know, uh, and I usually engage with Uber drivers because, first of all, I, I respect them for taking on a job. But a lot of times, you know, you, you want to show that you're pleasant because you get rated, right? <laughs> and you get to rate them. But in the course of just talking to them, you know, one guy was saying that he had a business and he wanted to create this company what kind of business do you have, Mr. Lurie? And, and I told him I'm, I'm a lawyer. And next thing you know, he's my client. So I help him. And in the, in the, so it, it's let, let a thousand flowers bloom sort of thing. These are connections that you wouldn't necessarily expect. When, when, when Uber made its uh, offering of, this, uh, of, making, of facilitating transport and using unused vehicles such that everyone would benefit from it, they didn't even think about that. I'm sure about that. That, oh, wow, it'll make these connections, these conversational connections, and that'll help people as well. I mean, even when I'm pooling in Uber, I get to meet new people and I get opportunities to have new clients. It's good and for they, business, they, friendship, anything. 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 Anyway, it, it, it allows for great opportunity. Getting out there is, is the greatest thing. And yes, it's all unpredictable. And that sort of messiness is the greatest thing that America has ever offered. The notion that anything can happen in, in, and by and large, great things happen. That's the beauty of it. It's very rare that you will descend into nothingness because this, the government has not provided you the safety net. That is truly the exception. And in fact, it, it, it's, it's, it's a minuscule exception. And we dare not center our society entirely upon that, and that way of thinking, like the Kaaba in Mecca. You're talking about the fear. Yeah, the fear aspect of it because fear can only lead to our ruin. And if you want proof of that, just look at Europe, look at uh, the Arab world, look at just about anywhere other than America and Israel. I'm Barack Lurie. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk with you next week.